0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig, and today I'm joined by two new colleagues who have just joined us at the New Zealand Initiative. I welcome Dr. James Kerstedt and Dr. Matthew Birchall. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks, Oliver. You are both new to the initiative. James, you started a couple of weeks ago, and for you, Matthew, it's only really your second day. Day two. (laughs) Yeah. So it's early days for you, but for that reason, we thought it would be a very good idea to introduce you to our listeners and to those who really follow our work at the initiative. So if I could ask both of you to just give me a 30-second version of your academic CV so we've got a better idea where you're coming from, and maybe starting with
1: you, James. Right. So I studied classics at Oxford, and then I moved to California. I did a master's in political science at Stanford, and I also did a PhD in classics. And during the time I was a graduate student, my main interest was always in Ancient Greek democracy and really ancient Greek democracy and what we might learn from ancient Greek democracy today. So, I am a historian, I'm a classicist, but I also have some interest in, in politics, which is part of what brings me here. Great, I'm Matthew.
2: And I'm also a historian. I finished my PhD at the University of Cambridge last year. And prior to that, I did an MPhil in uh, intellectual history and political thought, also at Cambridge and an MA with honours in International Relations and Modern History at St Andrews. My broad research interests are in uh, Western political thought and uh, the history of empire. And after finishing the PhD, I did a a short postdoc at the University of Auckland, where I continued to uh, look at the New Zealand Colonisation Company, uh, which was the focus of my PhD.
0: Great, thank you. So with your backgrounds, you are the first two historians at the initiative, so welcome. You're starting a new tradition <laughs> here. Very interesting, CVs. Of course, also, you mentioned the names of the universities where you studied, and they certainly have a ring to it. What brings you then to a public policy think tank environment in Wellington? And what do you aim to achieve mm-hmm. here? Maybe starting with you.
2: Yeah, so uh, when you're doing a PhD in history, it's uh, very solitary <laughs> Occupation—it's intellectually fascinating, but a lot of the time it's spent fossicking around in, in dusty archives and record offices, uh, you know, in small towns in, in Britain. And so the impact is is fairly <laughs> marginal uh, sometimes for the labour put in. And as a New Zealander and someone who's you know committed to seeing New Zealand go in the right direction, I wanted to you know sum up. Sort of resources uh, that I'd I'd built up during my studies and applied in a more concrete way, and you know what better place to do it than than Wellington if you're interested in in public policy in New Zealand.
0: Great, and James, you're not a New Zealander; you're Canadian originally.
1: I'm originally Canadian, yeah. Although I spent a lot of my life uh, in England, but I mean, I, I agree with some of the reasons that you cited for coming here: as, you know, a bit more sociable, a bit more impact, but also. Um, They're the reasons that I put in my first Insights newsletter. Basically, one of them is that, you know, even though it's a delight to teach in New Zealand, the good students are very good and the top students are as good as you'll find anywhere. I've always had a bit of a concern that maybe the sort of bottom half of the distribution, something like that, really doesn't have the skills to really thrive in a a modern economy. The, The basic level of literacy doesn't seem as high as it might be. So that's kind of interesting, and you know, I've often thought about you know, why is that? Is it just because in New Zealand there's no sort of hierarchy of universities, so you really get the full distribution of talent? Or is there something that universities could be doing better? So I'm kind of interested in digging into that uh, in a sort of public policy setting. And then the other thing was just this sort of growing sense in the last uh, three or four years of being less free, as I said in the Insights newsletter. And particularly in a university environment, I think... Now, there have been a few episodes already in New Zealand academia of deplatforming, and you know the kind of phenomenon that we're familiar with from the States, and I'm a bit concerned that that's going to come here, and we're going to see more of it, and so that's also something I want to uh, think about. That is, of course, a global phenomenon. It's coming here, probably with a usual
0: two or three years delay, after it happened in the States and elsewhere, but... Since you have both had your academic education overseas and you have then returned to New Zealand, or actually moved to New Zealand in your case, James, what are the main differences actually between these international universities in which you learned and studied and New Zealand universities in which you both taught for a while and you're still teaching?
2: From my perspective in the arts, I feel like New Zealand uh, is very poorly served with how it teaches subjects like history classics, English literature. In what way? Well, I think it's not just a, to sort of back this up a little bit, I don't think it's just a university problem. I think it's a, a broader cultural issue. I don't think there's enough currency for being deeply read. Uh, this, is, this is just my sense. And so... Someone with interest in these subjects, I you know really wanted to go to a, a place where pursuing the arts, reading history rigorously and deeply was encouraged. And I am a little discouraged by coming back and not seeing that reciprocated in, in New Zealand.
0: Was that how you experienced this as well, James?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I would say that in a way it's a positive thing. Like I think the New Zealand University, definitely Victoria University, it's a very unpretentious place. Mm -hmm. It's a very egalitarian place, and it's a place which puts a lot of emphasis on accessibility, Mm -hmm. on making sure that, you know, basically anybody who wants to have a go to, to try their hand at university can come into the institution. Which is great because that's roughly what a university should be like. Well, exactly. You know, I mean, I think that's a good thing. But, I mean, it's just a question of emphasis, I think, that... There's not so much an emphasis here on standards. There's not so much of an emphasis here on excellence and on competition. And, you know, those things, too, they can become pathological if you take them too far. You know, I mean, some of the, you know, elite universities in the UK, for example, Oxford and Cambridge, some of the, you look at the undergraduates, I mean, they're under a lot of pressure. Maybe they've taken it too far. It's too elitist, and it's, there's a very strong sense of hierarchy among universities in the UK. So maybe there are things we don't want to import, you know, in quite so strong a form. But I would say that, Maybe in the New Zealand environment, like a little more emphasis on excellence, a little more striving to succeed, a little more sense of, you know, I can't hand in this essay unless I've really checked over the, that I've spelt everything correctly. That, that sort of focus on standards, I think, would be, would be quite helpful. So is
0: there a massive difference between classics graduates from New Zealand universities and
1: classic graduates from, say, American or European universities? Well, I mean, it's hard for me to say, but my impression, as I say, is that the top students in New Zealand are competitive at the top level internationally. So we send people from the class Department to Oxford and Cambridge, and they get scholarships to do PhDs. It's more that the, the sort of average or below average level of student that we still, you know, we want to take care of. I mean, we want to educate well. My sense is that we're not doing as good a job at making sure those students have the sort of basic skills for employment and life. Just in the, just, I mean, I can only look at literacy because I don't don't work so much with numbers. But just in terms of writing skills, I'm not sure that they're there right at the moment. So I've never studied classics, obviously. i only at
0: Latin at school for, I think, five and a half years. How do I have to imagine classics being taught in a New Zealand university these days? I mean, I assume you would still have to have a decent knowledge of Latin and Greek
1: no uh, Well I mean no it's, it's not it's not crazy that not everybody does Latin and Greek because there are a lot it would of places, help, wouldn't it? Well it does help. I mean there are a lot of places around the world where you can take a classics major or a classical studies major including actually at Princeton now and you don't have to do Greek and Latin. I think it's a bit strange at Princeton because you know they, they're drawing from the top end of the academic distribution.
0: I thought that's what you classics guys do. Well, this is the thing. I mean, in in
1: Germany and Italy, so the the real heartlands of classic. I mean, this is why, in some senses, a slightly unfair comparison, because if in Europe, I mean, they're steeped in the classics. That's really you know their heritage in a very direct way. Especially a place like Italy, which is sort of direct, uh, direct heirs of the Romans in some sense. They do a lot of Latin and Greek at high school, and then you can go into university and just sort of read these texts. Yeah, and in in, in even in England, it's not quite like that because it tends to be only sort of private boys' school schools that do Greek and Latin at school. So there are actually accessibility issues to do with that. But no, I mean, in New Zealand, we do offer Greek and Latin. It's just that there, there are small classes. And, and then you can study classics without actually learning You can study classical studies. You can get a major in classical studies without studying Greek and Latin. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I do think the university could be more supportive with the Greek and Latin classes, but this is partly a product of the way that the university is run now, which is all about bums on seats. You know, it's all about class sizes. So if you have small classes, even if they're classes where I think we're providing a really good education, you know we can work with students, you know not not necessarily one-on- one, but we can work closely with small groups of students. Even if there's a good learning environment, the university will just look at the numbers and decide that it's uh, perhaps not economically efficient. So hmm. that's something we're trying to defend, but it's getting harder. Same question for you then, Matthew.
0: What's the difference between a New Zealand history graduate and a history graduate from America or Europe?
2: One thing I would say is, I feel like there's been... History is all about context, right? And I don't think New Zealand history students today get uh, a broad enough historical education. And And so, again, in what sense? Yeah, so what I mean by that is if you're going to look at uh, New Zealand colonial history, which you absolutely should do, um, you do also need to look at the history of other empires. You need to know about the Enlightenment... You need to know yeah, much more about key political ideas, legal concepts, these sorts of things, so you can root New Zealand's history into that larger
0: world history. And is that still happening? Not as much as it should. So again, I haven't studied history, I had it at school, I'm very interested in historical matters, but how do I have to imagine it? Is it possible to go through a New Zealand history uh, course, or uh, study history at New Zealand universities and not encounter rudimentary concepts of global history.
2: There are core things like, you know, there's been a big de-emphasis on things like history of revolutions, uh, the renaissance, the reformation, you know, these were once sort of bread and butter stuff of, of... Is it
0: possible that a New Zealand history graduate wouldn't have encountered the enlightenment or the... So the French Revolution in there... I mean, history. they would have heard
2: the words, but if you had asked them to explain, you know, in, in a little bit more depth, then then I think you're on rough terrain there.
0: And I assume that maybe 20, 30 years ago that would have been a standard.
2: Yeah, so that's that's very much the case. Um, I mean, part of this is the cultural turn, so there's been a big uh, emphasis in cultural history, which is, is fine, but, you know, <laughs> you still need to know you know, the stock and trade of, of the history um, discipline.
0: So that's the content side of university education in New Zealand these days. What
1: else has changed in your observation over the last few years? Well, I mean, for me, as I said at the beginning, I mean, there's a major concern around f- academic freedom and freedom of speech. You know, I've already said in New Zealand we've had a few episodes like, you know, Don Brash being... Disinvited from Massey, and then there was the re- reaction to the letter to the listener about science, which I thought was very concerning. I mean, what I would stress is that in terms of my day-to-day existence, it's not that it, it's not like it's sort of evergreen state every day, and that there are constantly sort of students running around, writing. I mean, far from it. And in fact, m- my experience in classics has been very pleasant, and my my colleagues have been very honorable. Actually, you know, when I came here, for example, they didn't sort of. Jeer at me or anything like that, they, they're very supportive. So it's not so much that, it's just I think that the, at the administrative level, especially, the university, I think, has bought into a certain way of looking at things and a, cer- a, cer- a certain way of looking at things and a certain ideology, which is now sort of the official or the semi official ideology of the university. And so y- there is a lot of freedom to research and to, and to read and write you know, whatever you want, except insofar as you start running up against that ideology. So, so that's why the two things can be true at once. One is that actually the university is quite free. Most people are relatively free to research, which is why I, I think a lot of academics think there's no problem with freedom of speech. And the other thing that can be true at the same time is that, yeah, there are actually some hard lines that you can't cross. And I'm a bit concerned that those lines are sort of getting harder and they're, they're moving closer to you know people's uh, academic freedom.
0: I see you're nodding, Matthew. So you've probably encountered something similar. Is it also a more bureaucratic place these days and rather than a place of what makes change and just a battle of ideas?
2: Yeah, I should firstly say that my experience in the university was very short in an employment capacity and mm-hmm. half of my postdoc was during the lockdown. So I don't have the same wealth of experience as, as James to to draw on. What I would say is it is, uh, my sense, is it's much more bureaucratic than, say, working at a place like New Zealand initiative, there's a lot of box ticking. You know, I found it really hard to teach a class, actually, because I wasn't an MA or PhD student at the university, and I've found this both uh, at Auckland when I was one of their postdocs, but also reaching out at Vic because it's, you know, it's a subject that I care very deeply about and I would love to teach New Zealand students, but they place hurdles in front of you, and I think, you know, unnecessary hurdles at that, so that's just uh, what I would add to uh, what James is saying. It's
0: a bit surprising, I would imagine, that if you come with a PhD from Cambridge, some universities might be interested.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> you would have thought, but... <laughs> okay,
0: well let's talk about your work then at the initiative, which has only really just started, maybe starting with you, Matthew. What's going to be your first project and how do you think your skills as a historian will come in handy?
2: Yeah, so my first project is to look at the history of infrastructure in New Zealand. How have we in the past funded our big infrastructure projects? You know, everyone's aware that uh, New Zealand is not well served, or at least they should be aware that New Zealand is not well served by its infrastructure. But as a starting point into, you know, really rigorous uh, analysis of infrastructure in New Zealand, I think it's important to take that historical stock take of how things have been. You know, are there episodes in New Zealand history that we could point to and say, hey, that's, you know, we got stuff done there, we were able to deliver a project on time and And within budget or, you know, and if so, why so? If not, why not? And sort of just expand our understanding of of infrastructure within the New Zealand context.
0: It's a bit unfair to ask you right at the beginning (laughs) of the research project, but you probably have a gut feel since you've also dealt with similar questions in your doctoral thesis. Mm. Is it a question of systems, of financing mechanisms, or is it a question of culture?
2: There's a really interesting dynamic between the two. And I think, you know, if the structure is wrong, that can feed a bad culture. You know, but if the structure is right, you know, the culture will sort of perpetuate itself. So as a historian, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating as a historian is you're always trained to think about things on a very big macro structural level but then also get into the nitty-gritty of contingency and it's, it's constantly weighing those things up. You know, both the, the political leader matters, <laughs> but also the, the structure within which they're they're operating matters. So it's that, mm. yeah, sort of deft balance between the two.
0: And James, we've already touched upon your subject of your research and that's the state of our universities, the quality and the freedom of speech aspects of our university education these days. What do the ancient Romans and Greeks have to tell us about that and teach us?
1: Oh, I mean, I think one thing the Greeks have to teach us about democracy and freedom of speech is that, you know, we can go back to the very beginnings of democracy Mm -hmm. in ancient Greece, and we can look at the history of democracy in different parts of the world, and it's not always the case that democracies are liberal. It's not always the case that liberalism, liberal societies are democratic. But there seems to be some kind of relationship between those two things.
0: And democracy meant something very different in ancient Greece.
1: Democracy did mean something very different. I mean, Well, actually, in some ways, I think democracy, the, the basic idea of democracy has sort of always been the same. It's just a very, it's just a quite a vague idea. The idea of democracy is that the people have power. That's literally what it means in ancient Greek power of the people. And then the question is, well, what does that mean for you and how do you actually manifest that? What institutions do you build up around that? And we have representative democracies. The Greeks had direct democracy. But, yeah, I mean, the the freedom of speech was important in the Athenian Assembly just as it is today because it's very difficult to have any idea of popular power unless you allow people to speak, right? Because there's no way you can have any political influence or power if people can just shut you down if they find your uh, views offensive or they dislike them, right? So that's why I think... In some ways, freedom of speech is one of the most central ideas of democracy, and that's certainly something that you can see played out in in history.
0: So that's the freedom of speech aspect. What about education ideals? Can you infer some lessons from Roman and Greek times into our education debates today?
1: Well, I mean, it's difficult because in the ancient world, of course, their educational system, f- from our perspective, their educational system looks terrible. I mean, in ancient Athens, they didn't even have a state education system. It was mostly private. However, it is interesting that by the standards of pre-modern societies, it looks like democratic Athens had a, had a relatively high rate of literacy. And it actually, by pre-modern standards, it was actually a rather spectacular rate of literacy. And ideas of transparency and the people being able to look at what their leaders were doing were very crucial in ancient Athens. So one of the things that they did was to inscribe laws on stone, and sometimes they would even say on them, this is so that people can read them, you know? And, you know, historians argue about, well, what percentage of the population could really read them? But the idea was there that, uh, that we still have today, which is that, you know, things should be transparent because if what the government is doing is not transparent, then again, there's no capacity for this power of the people and, of course, transparency in, uh, you know, in government is something that's a perennial concern in democracies, including today. I mean, not just this government, but, I mean, you know, across the world and whatever government we're dealing with, you know, this initiative and journalists and universities will always be trying to say, well, what, what exactly is the government doing? And it's crucial that we're able to actually see some of what the government is doing so that we can discuss and criticize it.
0: For us, at the initiative it's um, something new to have uh, two historians on the team. Previously, we mainly employed economists All for, for since. Uh, What would you say uh, can, what is is the specific quality that historians, uh, other representatives of the humanities bring to public policy debates today and to policy analysis? What is it that you bring to the table that was probably missing until now?
2: Yeah, I think speaking as a historian, it allows you to do a few things. One is to understand that the only time is, is not now and the only place isn't just here. And that can be a very liberating thing intellectually, I think. You know, if you're trained, say, in law or economics, perhaps you can sort of get, (laughs) yeah, think more narrowly about the policy problems that we face. And a historian, someone with a historical education, is able to step back and perhaps reframe the debate, look at another context ask a different sort of question about how societies have, have grappled with these these big issues. And so I think that's that's one really important thing that a, a historian does.
0: Mm.
1: And James? Yeah, I just think it gives you more depth. I mean I think it's actually quite surprising sometimes to a lot of people how a lot of the issues we talk about in public life actually have this historical dimension, which people often don't realize, you know? And there are a lot of current debates even about the nature of science or about the nature of free speech and democracy or empire, you know, mm. that have a, a, a deep historical dimension. So, you know, you might think, well, okay, we're talking about empire in New Zealand, so all we need to think about is the British empire. And, of course, that's the most relevant thing. And you think, okay, what did the British empire do? What were its sins? What were its, its successes? What were its, you know, occasional successes, maybe? But it's very difficult to, to think about that without some comparative sense mm. of, have there been other empires in world history? Was this the only time an empire occurred? What about pre-modern empires? Were they different in substantial ways? And uh, again, it, it's not like something about ancient Athens or ancient Persia is necessarily going to be the most relevant thing in the debate, but you never know. Uh, and it also just helps fill in this uh, sort of sense of it's a big world out there and there are all these comparative cases. And it really, it's really only possible to read our particular case against the backdrop of all these other cases.
0: So I take it that you both bring a completely different perspective to our policy discussions in the office. And I look forward to your contributions, to your research. And for now, welcome to the initiative.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.